Welcome to The Marketing Commute, a podcast that explores the roads taken and the lessons learned for the best and brightest in marketing today. I'm Mike Boyd, and joining me on The Commute this time are Andrew Baxter, Senior Advisor at KPMG Australia. Hi, Mike. And Carmen Becker, Partner at KPMG Australia and Leader of their CMO Advisory Practice. Hi, Mike. In this episode of The Marketing Commute, we are joined by Greg Paul, who is the Co-Founder and Principal of R3 Worldwide. Greg spent the first 20 years of his career on both the marketer and agency side of the business in the US, Europe and Asia Pacific with powerhouses such as Bates and Ogilvy. And in 2002, he co-founded R3, an independent global marketing and agency consultancy. We're looking forward to having a chat with Greg later on. We'll also get the latest thoughts and perspectives on marketing trends in Mitchell's Marketing Minute. All right, let's go. So Tim, what's caught our eye this week? Well, for me, it's uh, how agencies have been reacting to um, uh, COVID nineteen and 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 their client spend. Uh, you know, we've seen all sorts of announcements around. You know, uh, some of the major uh, agency networks cutting uh, cutting costs or standing down staff. We saw uh, this week uh, publicists announced that they were going to uh, try and make savings of half a billion euro over the next period of time. But then on the other hand, it hasn't just been about the staff. You know, the staff. I mean, I saw John Wren, the chair and CEO of Omnicom, actually announced that he was going to forego his salary through to uh, the end of September. So yeah, that's what's caught my eye from an agency point of view. And what's caught my eye? I um, think it's very interesting how various agencies are coping with filming and creating advertising during the lockdown. So particularly um, in many markets where they, they have less ability to get out and about than we do in Australia, uh, even for work. And to see the sort of creativity and the sorts of things that are coming from that, um, the content studios who are used to producing um, work very quickly inside or using uh, graphics and effects um, are booming. Um, whereas I imagine traditional um, film production companies who are shooting outdoors in a lot of markets are really suffering and having to find new ways to think about bringing their business to, to life during the, during the crisis. And for me, it's, I, mean, I think it's hard to miss the accelerated uh, growth in online gaming and esports. Um, you know, I think it was couple of weeks ago that you know twitch had reported it had you know four million concurrent viewers on its platform for the first time i mean four million concurrent viewers is a huge huge number and then obviously you know streaming more than 1.2 billion hours of content but what's interesting from a from a marketing point of view and a brand point of view is the different brands that are or different sports i should say and the brands that are really embracing esports so for instance motorsport is massive in esports and they're actually now finding that brands such as Red Bull, for instance, are actually getting their drivers to swap between different modes of, of motorsport to actually foster up the, the, the Red Bull brand across different, different, um, different categories. So, and that's just motorsport. I mean, there's going to be so many more coming forward. But online gaming is clearly you know, here to stay and, and, and on an absolute growth tear. I saw just on that uh, David Yarton, who was the old head of Nintendo in Australia many years ago and then ran the UK and he popped up on his uh, Facebook. Uh, he's quite involved in uh, eSports uh, out of the UK now. And there's there's a whole um, online gaming global uh, get-together uh, coming up uh, early in early May called Yana, which is, you know, you are not alone. So it's, it's trying to bring in, in this, you know, time where we can't necessarily connect as well as we normally would. They've actually created a, a huge platform and a huge day um, where they're yelling out to the 10 million odd gamers uh, online around the world to to get together. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it completely makes sense from a from a you know get everyone together, get everyone across. Because there's been a lot of people in different markets that are more sophisticated with gaming and, and and those that aren't. So yeah, if you can start to bring some sort of 
you know global viewpoint as to here's how to get the most from from your online gaming that's going to be going to be huge and those brands that haven't experimented yet with online gaming it's worth giving it a go now i guess with other mediums being more challenging at the in these times experimentation's probably key well you're right there i mean you know there's all of a sudden we've got a moment in time where some mediums aren't available like cinema for example um so you know having having a growth channel uh, or a growth medium like uh, online gaming gives you a chance to do something a little bit different i think the whole agency thing's been interesting as well and how different um agencies are doing okay through this and, and some agencies um are obviously cutting a lot of costs and i do think it de- it is determined on what your client mix is if you've got a bunch of booming brands uh, in there, then you're obviously going to be ma- maintaining, uh, you know, reasonable revenue levels and don't need to cut anywhere near as much as those that have. Or, or if you've got, if you're heavy, heavily reliant, for example, on events business uh, or an events company within your organisation, then then clearly with no events happening, that's very difficult. Yeah, there's that old saying in in advertising world that you're only three phone calls away from disaster in advertising, and <laughs> one of those, um, it, you know, the conversation there is about diversification, and you know, you've got to make sure in your agency business that you've got a diversified client base, so you're not just focused, for example, in one category or in one one area that doesn't allow you to um, to have a mix when something like this hits. So you, you're completely right. It's it's, it's challenging if you're a, a sole provider. Uh, to a sole industry, um, but if you have a little bit of a diverse a diverse base, you, you, there's survival techniques there. I think from a client point of view too, it was good to see. Um, I think Brent Smart from NRMA come out and, and say, and obviously you know insurance is continuing to do uh, well through this period of time, but come out to say he wasn't going to cut, cut any um, agency costs uh, and he was going to continue uh, as per normal. Mm, uh, th- this idea of a true partnership is really special and and quite unique, and I think any clients that. Uh, provide that a true partnership both ways um, are very special clients and they should be held on to. <laughs> well, I think, and I think also that to that to that point, Carmen, I think that those special partnerships and those great relationships that you know, that there's always in the market, there's always a great brand and a great agency and a great partnership. I think it will actually now start to change the model. You know, I, I think a lot of agencies will now look at look at this as an opportunity to say, right, well, how do we actually change how we actually do what we do, whether it's diversification, but also how do we actually just, you know, provide what we provide in a different way to make us less less prone to, to, to ups and downs. Yeah, and I wonder how the whole working from home will in the future change some of the cost models um, of agencies and some of the structures and, and the way they cost for, for clients. That will be very interesting um, to look at in six months' time and look back and see if the the way we work has changed the way we we price and cost uh, creative services, um, media services, etc. Yeah, and I mean, if you've only got to apply things like travel to that sort of thing and say, well, there's not going to be a huge amount of you know interna- international travel for in the next six to twelve months. Um, similarly, you know, as you say, working from home, commercial property. I mean, do we need to lease so much space to have so many people? Can we you know spread people out? you know, more, more regionally and, and at home um, to lower the cost base. Our guest this week has worked in marketing in Australia, Asia-Pacific, Europe and the USA. Greg Paul started his career agency side before co-founding global independent consultancy R3, based in New York in 2002. Since then, R3 has expanded to manage global relationships with the likes of Unilever, Samsung, Pfizer, Coca-Cola, Visa and J&J. Greg recently co-authored China CMO, a detailed analysis of marketing in the Middle Kingdom. Greg, it's a pleasure to have you here with us. Uh, welcome to the Marketing Commute. Well, thank you so much. That's a, a wonderful introduction. 
Hey, now, it's been a pretty long road from studying marketing and advertising at UTS to co-founding a global consultancy firm in New York. What, what got you into marketing in the first place and, and then how did you make that transition? Yeah, look, I mean, I think I, I, you know, grew up like most Aussie kids, just sort of glued to the television. So, uh, you know, sort of swamped with advertising and, and that whole industry. I always wanted to be a writer. And um, I actually, uh, in my first year in advertising, uh, did something called award school and um, was was helping submit uh, creative ideas. And I ended up becoming um, second that year behind some guy called David Droger. I don't know what happened to him, but um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. He, he still he still got his uh, his award book in his office in New York. Doesn't he really? Oh, my God. So after losing to him, I decided I better do something else. So I moved state in account management and kind of focused on that instead. I've never forgiven him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you co-founded R3 in 2002. Um after many years of working in global agencies, what was the driver? Why did you make that decision and, and, and how did you choose that career path? I just got sick of the sort of the quarterly business planning. And, you know, at one stage, uh, you know, someone from New York called me in mid-January and said, how are the January numbers looking? And I said, well, you know, the hamburgers are selling well, but nobody's buying the French fries. So, you know, it, it kind of made me feel like I should be creating my own destiny and setting up something to myself. And I think Setting up an ad agency on your own is, is an extremely large challenge. You need a great team to, to make it work. And if you look at even at Droger, he's got, you know, a, a really solid team of guys he's worked with for a long time. So, you know, it just seemed like a very daunting task to do that. And, and I just saw this gap in the market in Asia for consulting firms. So we kind of started in Asia and grew out from there. So that's, that's how we did it. And what sort of help did you get when you started that? Do you, did, you said we, did you do that with partners or how, how did you actually get that off the ground? Yeah, I've still got my business partner in Singapore. We've worked together for 18 years. We we're just on a call a few minutes ago. So, you know, we've, we've got a, uh, we've only been in the same city for sort of two of those 18 years, but we've still managed to work, you know, talking daily or every couple of days and, and, you know, growing the business together. So yeah, that's really how it came about. And we're also quite fortunate when we started, we, we met some different companies in London and New York and, and Chicago and, and formed sort of partnerships with them so that we build a global network. And, you know, now, um, We've got about 100 people in um, in the US, uh, London, China and Singapore. And has your proposition changed since first setting it up and, and what you set out to achieve and what you're achieving now? Yeah, look, I think so. I think 18 years ago, the marketing industry was very different. You know, um, it was it was a little bit more, uh, you know, easier to be sort of a standalone consultant and, and run pitches and things like that. I think now, you know, it sounds kind of arrogant, but we, we see ourselves very much as the McKinsey of marketing that, you know, the CEO has got... McKinsey, Bain and, and, and BCG and the CFO has got, you know, Ernst & Young and KPMG and PwC, there should be a standalone expert for the CMO that can play that role. And of course, there is the agency ecosystem, but, you know, our role is kind of different to that. But uh, there isn't really anyone playing that role for the CMO. I know people like McKinsey and others are now moving down into marketing, but, you know, there, there needs to be that kind of specialist playing that role, we believe. So Greg, R3 is obviously you know, known as a truly global consultancy firm, but what strategies, what processes have you clearly had to develop over the last 18 years to manage those complexities of operating at a global scale? Because obviously technology five years ago, let alone 18 years ago, wasn't anywhere like what it is today. Yeah, it's a good question, Mike. I think the, 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 the challenge is really understanding how every market is different in some scope, scope or form. I mean, obviously, there's still local media buying and local nuances, but it's really getting your head around... Um, 
how marketers approach it um, on a local basis. And we've been lucky with people like Coke and Unilever that are, we're working across multiple markets. So they've kind of helped us on the learning curve in terms of how they're doing it. And um, yeah, we've, we haven't been ashamed to sort of take on a market we don't know enough about and then just invest the time to sort of figure it out. So I think that's the thing. It's easy to say global, but it's hard to do sort of local plus global. So we've just kind of tried our best to, to really understand the local differences. And what about the R3 name? Where did that come from? <laughs> well, actually, that's a good example of how we changed the name because when we started 2002, it was, you know, relationships, reviews, and remuneration, which were kind of where we started. Um, and I guess about five or six years ago, we changed it to um, return on agencies, return on media, and return on investment. So, you know, a lot of the work we're doing now, um, you know, is based on looking at the digital ecosystem and it doesn't really have anything to do with agencies. It's much more about you know, is my website working well and, and is my social media campaigns optimized and so on. So, yeah, we've we've kind of migrated a lot away from being a pitch consultant to being a, you know, an independent consultant. Greg, one of the things when you, you know, particularly when you're growing your own business, you tend to have some mentors that help you, you know, in, in, in driving the direction of your career and the business. Who have been some of yours and how have they helped you along the way? Yeah, look, I think I was lucky uh, at the beginning. My first job was at George Patterson, and I kind of stayed there for 11 years. So, you know, I was kind of fortunate to have people like Alex Hamill and some of these great, you know, leaders of the past to kind of learn from and, you know, very inspirational in the way that they manage clients and, uh, you know, stay focused on the bigger picture. So I think that that, that was a really good grounding for me to, to get going. And, and what are some of the issues that you see facing um, marketers today? I mean, we are talking at a time of the, the COVID crisis, so um, yeah. I think that's that's an interesting backdrop um, to, to that discussion. But maybe we could focus on uh, the macro and then the today. Yeah. Because I know marketers are facing into lots of different issues uh, and right now a crisis, but, but perhaps we could have a chat about that for a minute, what you're seeing, the, the trends, especially with the Asia lens. It's really interesting for us. Yeah, look, I mean, it sounds super cliche, but, you know, 100 years ago, John Wanamaker said, half my advertising is working. I don't know which half. And I don't know that it's gotten a lot better, despite, the, you know, the influx of data and, and insights and benchmarking and everything else. There's still an issue over fraud. There's still an issue over, you know, digital engagement. You know, all of these challenges are, are global issues. And, um, you know, we have this saying now called FOFO, which is fear of finding out that there are marketers that don't necessarily want to find out that Facebook and Google aren't necessarily working for them as well as they should, or they don't want to find out that um, they have transparency issues because they're, you know, the CFO will come down on them with a ton of bricks. So um, it's it's a real challenge for the marketers to have that kind of ability and, and mindset to to really look at it. I mean, someone like P and G is probably leading the way. They're the ones that have been, you know, outspoken about transparency and about agency models and you know, they're really conscious of the fact that things need to be better measured and improved, but there aren't enough marketers um, really open to that mindset. I think that's kind of the big challenge. And, you know, in the present day, yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, we've kind of got a three-speed company ourselves right now. You know, our China guys are back in the office and uh, clients are working and, and there's projects and things are happening. Singapore guys kind of split between home and office, and then the U.S. team is completely at home and, and furloughed and all that sort of stuff. So it's it's really uh, depends on which country you look at right now. But um, if you look at China, it's like oh, you know, we had a problem for two months that we've solved, and now we're getting back on with it. So 
you know, let's hope the rest of the world can follow that approach. And have you seen anything interesting um, from the marketers across those countries to deal with this current crisis? I know there's lots, been lots in the press about this brand and that brand doing certain things, but with your global hat and your, you know, Asia Pacific um, ability to see across yeah. countries, what, what have you seen that's been interesting to you? Yeah, look, I think what Coke did in the Philippines was outrageous, but, it, you know, it was incredibly impressive. They decided to take their advertising budget for 2020 and apply that to COVID. Um, you know, literally take that money and spend it on, you know, improving the conditions of Filipinos. So that was a very bold move. Um, and we haven't seen other marketers go to that same kind of extent. But um, yeah, look, I think everyone's, you know, trying the best they can. You've got, you know, some of our clients like Colgate are, are migrating over heavily to personal care and getting products out there that are going to be more competitive for the for the for the um, current mindset. So I think, you know, just being open to that is is the most positive thing a marketer can do. One of the things that's um, going to be a challenge for some of the students that listen to us is, you know, they're going to enter uh, the workforce in the next couple of years uh, in these quite uncertain times. And I, I think you're a similar vintage to me uh, through that late uh, 80s, early 90s was the last time that happened. What, what would be some, I suppose, some tips and uh, advice you'd give to some of those young kids? I think that's a great question. It's going to be a challenge, uh, quite honestly, you know, with or without COVID. I think, you know, the the whole Automate, automation of uh, of the world and you know particularly marketing um, you know isn't going to stop so I think it's just finding ways that you can actually add value and, and finding a skill that, um, that that differentiates you from everybody else I think that's really important is to understand your own you know particular capabilities um, and you know really try to shine and focus on something that that makes you special and makes you different um, that's what marketers that's what um, you know, HR teams and so on are going to be looking at is is who's, who really stands out and who can do something exceptional. I mean, we've been really lucky in places like China. We've we've grabbed some students that have been educated in in China, went to the US for their university, and they've come back and they're you know some of them are incredible to work with, you know, um, super bilingual and smart, and uh, you know have been fantastic. So I think just be open to you know looking for the best talent. You're obviously seeing so many marketing teams across so many countries right now i mean what, what up until this recent crisis i mean what what are some of the best teams doing i mean what, what what's keeping some of them ahead of the pack i mean if you put it in one word it's kind of been open i think you know if you look at people like unilever they set up something called the foundry you know seven or eight years ago which was a an investment fund into technology companies um and startups it's, it sounds outrageous that a a CPG company would do something like that. But, you know, they've kind of taken the mindset of we have to keep innovating and we have to keep moving. And, um, yeah, you're seeing that companies that are embracing that are really making a difference. Um, you know, L'Oreal now, for example, if you want to get a job in the marketing department of L'Oreal at any, any level, you have to answer a 50-part a questionnaire on digital. And uh, for sure, I'm not going to know all those answers. <laughs> I, do, I mean, I hope someone does because people are working there. But, you know, they've just decided, you know, we're going to hire 3,000 digital marketers. We want them to be world class. So they're really changing the way that they hire people and, and you know, and, and grow their business. So, um, yeah, I think just being open and having that mindset of what's new and what's happening um, is really important. Um, we, we've just spent uh, the last six months doing presentations all over the U.S. on TikTok. And, you know, there's a massive fascination on what companies are doing and how it's working and where it's going. And I think just being open to that is really important. Those markets, Greg, you just mentioned before, 
China having, you know, a lot of kids go into the US to be educated and, and obviously coming back. And, and I know for a fact that you know, Indonesia has, has very much the same same situation. I think they've got something like, you know, 50% of the population of Indonesia is aged under 30. It, it does, at what point will some of these regions in Asia start to develop their own sense of marketing and marketing practices rather than necessarily having to go and study in the US or study abroad to then bring those practices back? You know, when will they start to develop their own identity around those marketing practices, do you think? To be honest with you, I would say China is is at least five years ahead of the rest of the world on e-commerce marketing um, and probably five years ahead on influencer marketing. So I think um, to answer your question, they've actually probably moved ahead. They just haven't necessarily publicized it, um, but they've moved ahead in different ways. So I think, you know, um, you know, in China, I mean, we're, we're right now we're running a, a KOL influencer pitch for a big car company. Uh, you know, the sort of thing sounds ridiculous to be running a, you know, hiring a consultant to do something like that. But, you know, it's such a huge part of the investment of marketing now in China is managing influencers at all levels managing the whole ecosystem with e-commerce. So I think it is changing, um, and, and, but it's just maybe not changing all over Asia um, the way it's changing in China. I think you're going to see an increasing role of China brands globally. I know you guys have had some challenges with Huawei in Australia, so has the US, but you know we work with them in you know 60 or 70 countries, and they're just unbelievable growth that they're going through. There's another you know four or five different Huaweis that are going to come out of China and, and play global roles. Um, you know, TikTok's probably one of the best examples of that. So I think you are going to see more global brands come out of Asia. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And um, yeah, I think the challenge with every marketer is just the whole proliferation of content now that, you know, five or six years ago, before you had to, you know, post social content every three or four hours, you could make your annual campaign and, and be done with it. But, you know, now... There's just so much content that needs to be created. The whole way of working and, and process is, is just very different. Um, Greg, I'm interested in hearing, having come from agency side in your career, what, and we do have a number of agency listeners, people from agencies that listen into the marketing commute. I wondered what, what do you think marketers are looking for in their agencies right now? And, and what should agencies be thinking about when they're talking to marketers? I mean, honestly, if for an agency, I would go back to the, the concept of the, you know, the new students and recruits, which is just have a point of difference and be special. I mean, we have this cliched saying that, you know, 80% of agencies have the same point of difference, which is that we're 360 degree brand building, media neutral, uh, idea centric, you know, it's like you have to really stand for something and be special. Um, you know, Jerry Garcia from The Grateful Dead said, you know, I never want to be known as the best of the best. I want to be known as the one and only. And, you know, I think if you look at someone like David Droger, for example, he's decided, look, I want to be known as the, the one and only independent, you know, creative agency. And he's done a great job at that. So I think just have a point of view and be specific. I mean, you, you don't need to be a jack of all trades. You need to really be, you know, known for something special. We're asking everyone about their commute to work. We know it's different for everybody around the world. And we love to hear a little bit about your day and, and how you get to work and what that's like, what your journey's like. Wow, that's cool. I think I have the longest commute of anybody because I have a 15-hour commute because uh, my family's in Hong Kong, but I, I work in New York. So I'm uh, on, a, on a Cathay Pacific flight usually, uh, which is kind of at least twice or three times a, a week. 
That is the longest commute so far. A one hundred percent. You have won that prize. <laughs> yeah, you've won that hands down. We'll send you a trophy in the mail. Finally, finally <laughs> the airline industry afloat single-handedly. <laughs> uh, well, actually, we did a, a large project for them last year, and I think it was the first year that I, you know, they paid me more than I paid them, so that was good. But uh, <laughs> that kind of commute is, uh, you know, filled with Netflix and, uh, you know, the occasional computer uh, uh, email report and whatever. But um, yeah, it's a flat bed for fifteen hours, so I guess that's probably as good as it gets. And you talked about Netflix. Do you have a favorite song? We're going to put together a playlist of every all the people that we speak to's favorite songs that they listen to on their commute. Well, I'm an old guy from the '80s, so I'm probably more still a New Order fan. If anything else, so uh, you know, anything from New Order in the '80s would be fine. Very nice. Respect. Well done. <laughs> Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining us on the Marketing Queue. It's been a great chat hearing about your journey, going uh, back from uh, Australia, New York, uh, living in Hong Kong. It's been an incredible journey for both you and R3. So well done and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. So for this week's Mitchell's Marketing Minute, I've chosen something from the Journal of Marketing on how to win more B2B contracts with effective e-sales. So many B2B firms are adopting technology-mediated channels for sales interactions, and up to 70% of customers prefer e-communications over other formats. This results, yeah, in the article argues, 75% increase in e-negotiations, and by one estimate, 80% of US sale negotiations are now conducted online. The study analysed more than 40 e-negotiations over a two-year period and found a 30% increase in buyer retention increases the likelihood of the contract award sevenfold. So getting buyer retention yeah, is pretty critical to any sales angle. So one implication is that they recommend the sales managers yeah, specify buyer retention as a key yeah, process metric or KPI. However, what was interesting was yeah, that there was no individual tactic that was sufficient to hold a buyer's attention or win a contract award. Instead, you need to use concurrent tactics like assertiveness and promise, invoke yeah, um, compliance yeah, in people, reduce risk, simplify information processing during e-negotiations, and can boost buyer retention by 14%. In contrast, the use of information sharing and recommendation tactics results in a 15% increase in buyer retention and works by persuading the receiver to focus on the merit of the argument. Importantly, if salespeople use any other combination than those I've just mentioned from the article, then yeah, actually buyer retention decreases. So, marketing commuters, any thoughts on information sharing and recommendation? versus promise and assertiveness yet in creating B2B sales. What I think is really um, interesting, Vince, is how are we actually measuring buyer attention in this survey? Um, I'd be interested in finding out how and when in the sales journey they're measuring that because uh, that's one of the key things to look at is where interest peaks and drops in this journey. And I, I think it sounds right. It's, it's, it feels like NLP. A, a new version of NLP or, or they're talking about NLP um, using assertiveness and promise and uh, and information sharing. So I, I think it's interesting. Some of these obviously B2B 
negotiations are, uh, you know, extremely complex depending on what category you're in. But I often like to bring this back to, you know, they're just people at the end of the day as well. And I think some of those things that came out there about, you know, recommendation and information sharing um, is as true for B2C customers as B2B. And, and you know, I think when you, when you that, that great ad that was done a few years ago for Volvo trucks with Jean-Claude Van Damme with the splits, you know, and then highlighting the, um, the, the driver precision. I've had my ups and downs, my fair share of bumpy roads and heavy winds. I mean, it was a it was a great ad that appealed as much to a normal consumer as it did to that B two B, and really highlight that that point that they were trying to make that these were you know precision driving vehicles um, as one of the real um, points of business and promise um, through this. Yeah, I was gonna, I was just thinking the same thing, Andrew. In that, in that, when you look at the supply in a B two B sense, it could easily apply to B two C. And, and I think you know, car purchasing, all those sorts of influences, and anywhere that where there's a complex, you know, negotiation, real estate could be another one. Like, could it apply into those into those same areas where you can take these complexities and 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 make them for everybody? I think one of the things that I, I really like about yeah yeah this piece of research is. We all know that the B2B uh, path to purchase is, is complicated. Uh, and, and for them to be able to disentangle some of these, to be able to make those claims, yeah, yeah, is testament to, the, to their yeah, research design and, and really yeah, helps to give a, an insight into some processes which are devilishly complicated yeah, yeah, and actually yeah, quite difficult to understand. Yeah, so it's, it's rare that you get yeah, 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 some research that is as clear as this in this particular area, I think. And I quite like that it was clearly about today's types of negotiations, which are all, you know, majority are now conducted online. I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, all of those sorts of negotiations would have been face-to-face. So I think a really good insight. Well, that's it for this episode of The Marketing Commute. Thanks to our guest, Greg Paul from R3 Worldwide, and to Andrew Baxter and Carmen Becker from KPMG. To our producers, Boyd Britton and Billy Gleeson, the studios at the University of Sydney Business School, and to KPMG's customer brand and marketing advisory team. You can find The Marketing Commute on all good podcast networks, and you can read more detailed show notes and get links to each episode and find out more about our guests and presenters at the website, themarketingcommute.com. I'm Mike Boyd. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the next stop on The Marketing Commute. You have reached your destination.